0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. It's a parent and has been today, is, I've had a chance to speak with various people in meetings and the other teachers as well, is how much greater stillness and settledness there is in the retreat and in people's hearts and minds. And it doesn't mean there isn't stuff of all different kinds, but it's a very different experience to allow this deepening of stillness to happen in the room, in your own body, in your own heart, Crowfoot, who's a Blackfoot native elder, says, What is life? It is the fat flash of a firefly in the night. It's the breath of a buffalo in winter. It is as the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And as you become still, there also comes a kind of an opening in which the trees and the sky and the salad and the mops and all that, they teach you things because you're present for it. And there's lessons that are learned in each turn of the path and each moment because your stillness allows you to be in a very different receptive, open relationship to life itself. And so this part is really important, and it's important in some way for the next days that you stay with it and invite the stillness to deepen and invite the layers that want to open to open. And sometimes you get very still and new experiences of mind opening and well-being and joy come. And sometimes you get still and new layers that need to be released come. You just did that forgiveness practice with spring and you notice, oh yeah, there's this whole part that needs to be forgiven, and then that part, and oh yeah, myself as well. Um, you can trust this process. You don't have to do it you have to be present for it, and then you don't have to pull the petals of the flower open but your presence allows the natural opening to happen. And of course, with the teachings on equanimity from Gina last night, you're invited to reflect on what it means to live <clears throat> to live with a peaceful heart. And even to think about the difficult situations in your life, which you have, because everyone does, And what does it mean to enter those difficult situations? What could it mean to enter them with a peaceful heart? And so we did that practice as well of big sky meditation this morning. And what we're learning in some way is both how to be more alive and also how to be present not just for life, but for death, because it will happen in case you hadn't noticed. It's one of the great mysteries that is talked about in the ancients. They say one of the most mysterious things in life is that people can see other people die all around them and still think it's not gonna happen to them. You know, I remember being with Stephen the Vine, and he said, how many of you think you're gonna die? You know, only like a quarter of the hands went up, right? (laughs) But what you're doing here with the forgiveness and the unfolding and the joys and the sorrows that come and the trees and the breath and the salad and the you know yogi meditations, work practice, is you're bearing witness to your human incarnation in a way that's not, that certainly wasn't part of the curriculum in my Ivy League education, I assure you. We did philosophy and science. But this is really a different, it's the education of the heart. And that practice this morning, of the big sky, big mind meditation, if it connected for you, which it did for some people, it gives you a sense that you can sit with someone who's in great difficulty, and know that they are not their body, you are not your body, you are not your feelings, you are certainly not your thoughts. I hope, given you know what most of you think, um, and you become trusting of this capacity to witness, to rest in awareness, even the things that, you know, our society turns away from. So again, a story from my dear friend Frank Ostaseski, the founder of Zen Center Hospice, from his new book. And he writes about having gotten a call from some parents saying, what do we do? What do we can? Can you help us? We have a seven-year-old boy who's been very sick with cancer. And Frank thinks, well, I'll go and I'll give them some ways to be with him. Conversation goes on a little. It turns out he just died, this child at home, half an hour ago. What do we do now? Can you come over? So he went there, and he said, I'd sat with a lot of people dying, including children, over these many years, but... I didn't know what would be needed, um, and part of what's true when we are in the face of the great mystery of life, which is really what we're sitting in the middle of here, is that we can't know. And he said, I went to the house and I went into this little boy's room, Jamie's room, and his parents were sitting there um, in shock in a certain way. And I went over and I leaned over to this little Jamie, and I kissed him on the forehead. And they began to weep because while they had cared for him as he was dying with great love and attention, they hadn't touched their boy since he died. It wasn't their fear of the, his body that kept them. It was the fear of the grief that it would unleash if they touched their son. And so I told them about the ritual in every ancient culture of washing the body. And they pre- the whole long cycle and they prepared This potion with uh, rosemary and sage and lavender and sweet rose petals, and warmed it up and got towels and washcloths. And after a few moments, the mother and father began to wash their boy. And they started to the back of his head and moved down his back. And sometimes they'd stop and tell one story about their son, tell another, tell them, remember when he fell, remember this. At other times, it became too much, and they would just go and stop and stare out the window and weep. The grief felt enormous. And the mother examined and lovingly cared for each little scratch or bruise on her son's body. When she got to Jamie's toes, she counted them, as she had done the day he was born. It was both gut-wrenching and extraordinarily beautiful to watch. And as I sat with them, Quietly, a beseeching question filled his mother's eyes. Will I be able to survive? Can I do this? Can any mother live with this grief? And I would nod in encouragement for her to continue. And it took a long time for them to wash her, their son. And then what she saved her last with incredible tenderness was to turn toward his face and wash his face for the last time. And somehow it's as if she had turned toward this that she didn't believe that she could bear. And by turning toward it with love and entering into it, the fierce fire of her heart began to melt the contraction of fear that had taken over her. He goes on in this story. And of course I read it and it's so tender and painful, and we could weep at the story. And yet it's also our story because we're human beings. And we're born and we're mortal. We have a certain arc of incarnation and we will die. And in it, with the practice that we have, comes the possibility of opening with courage and tenderness and compassion and mystery. And you sit. You sit And we hear the stories with your own longing and great love and beautiful states that come, and also the divorce and the family pain and the loneliness and the vastness of your own heart and mind. And the praise and blame that come to you as come to all people, the joy and sorrow. And what you learn is that you can trust awareness itself, that you can trust the heart to hold all that arises. There's a profound kind of trust that grows. The trust in awareness, that it's vast enough and great enough. When I was in China with Trudy recently, we were teaching at this 1,200-year-old temple, and the abbot who was in his 40s, Shifu, was like a brother. He was a really wonderful man and very interested in how we blend Buddhist psychology and Western psychology and bring in understanding of trauma and healing um, together with the deep practices of compassion and mindfulness. And, um, he was very open-minded. He wanted to learn. Part of the problem is that the abbots of many of the great temples there, we met several others, are in their 40s because their generation before them, all those teachers, were killed in the Cultural Revolution. So, they didn't get the kind of training that generations had had before. And we were walking and holding hands one evening in dusk and just talking to each other and um, talking about our teachers and how great, you know, he'd had a wonderful master who is now 91 and very old. And his teacher's teacher, Shuyun, was the most famous. Zen master in the last hundred years in China, who died in 1959 at age 120. And there's records of his teaching of a retreat like this for a thousand people in Shanghai in 1958 that you can read. Really remarkable. And then he's telling me, he said, I have a little concern. I said, what's that? He said, well, the great master was so extraordinary, and my teacher was, and now it's me. And I held his hand and I said, yo, I had Ajahn Chah, the wisest person I ever met, and his teacher, Ajahn Mun, was amazing, and now it's me. And not only that, it's not just me, but it's spring and Kanda and, you know, Celeste, and and um, is it like getting watered down each generation? And we laughed about it. Um, but we also knew that what was happening and being taught is ever-renewing, and that the dharma itself doesn't get watered down because it's born into us. And when I look at Spring and Kanda and Christiana and others in the new generation, I actually have a a great deal of love and trust that it will be carried. And not only that, when they get to be 120 years old, like Shu Yun, you know, they're really going to be wise. They're on their way. Um, But it it was a very tender moment. And then he said to me, so do you still get angry? I said, yo, dude, do I get angry, you know, frustrated, afraid. And it's not just me. I've seen some of the great masters get upset. I've watched the Dalai Lama chew people out and Thich Nhat Hanh get really upset, you know. And I went to India and I pissed off Mother Teresa, but that's another story. <laughs> I'll tell you another time. And And here is, you know... This contractor who's working to redo the house that I had lived in for a long time and we've got to go to Europe and its he's slow and he promised to get it done and I have to be here to finish all these things and he's not, and he's not. I keep asking, is a good guy? No, no, and it doesn't happen. And finally, it's like only a few weeks later and I go over to him and I yell and I say, listen, dude, you have, we have a contract. I'm going to sue your ass, get you in court. You better finish my blah, 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 swearing at him. And, and he looks at me and he says, oh, you want it done, don't you? <laughs> and I realized that I had to speak a different language, contractor ease, that he understood that, and that if I didn't speak that language, it's like, oh, nice Buddhist guy, yeah, I'll get it done whenever. No, no, you get the damn thing done and soon. And next day, all of a sudden, all these people show up working on the house. I remember after I'd been uh, come back from the monastery and I was driving again, I was driving down the freeway in Massachusetts, crowded, and a big semi in front of me lost part of a tire, it smashed into another car, would smash into a car, and I hit the brakes, and there was a pile up that was happening, some pretty high speed accidents, and I thought, okay, this is I'm gonna die. you know it was really scary. My mind was so calm because I'd been on a retreat like this, but for, you know, months and years. i very, very still. I thought, oh, well, I guess it's the day I'm going to die, right? That My hands grabbed the steering wheel. My body filled with adrenaline, wrenched it over to the side, through the grass and so forth. My body did not want to die, and it was not taking it peacefully or lying down. <laughs> and it was really interesting to see That, as Whitman says, I am large, I contain multitudes, you know. So he asked me, do I ever get angry? Of course, you know. But here's the game. That's not who you are. It's not who I am. Yes, we can release it. Yes, we can learn to work with these energies. Poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, Yo no soy yo. I am not I, I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I'm indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. And it's a really remarkable poem. It's a poem about soul or spirit or something that's greater than all the things that we get caught up in, in our life. And so yes, fear can still arise. You know, I think I'm all chill with everything and then fear comes anyway. Talking with Ram Dass, he said, oh yeah, I flunked the course lots of times. You know, you get to practice with these things. But what you start to recognize is that that's just part of human incarnation, the emotions and the thoughts. As Kensi Rinpoche, great Tibetan elder, writes, mind creates both samsara and nirvana, yet there's nothing much to it. It's simply thoughts. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. And so we sit and all these stories come, you're doing well, you're not doing well, you should be improving, you shouldn't, you know, you're unworthy, you're worthy, you're glorious, you're noble, you're, you know, a failure, all those, and and everything in between. Um, And you start to see that's just the mind doing its thing, you know. And it's, um, yeah, it does it on the pettiest level, as you walk around. It has no pride, you know. Um, Julia Child writes, in department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who had just come in for men's underwear, right? (laughs) And, you know, you walk by something and it just captures you, you know, and you see them and you like it and you hit it and you just, the mind does all this stuff. But as Trudy talked about in the, Four principles, the principle that there is suffering and loss in life and death, and it's part of the game of being incarnate, that there are causes to human suffering, greed, hatred, ignorance, and the things that come from that, fear and, you know, violence and racism and so forth. And it's not just in us, but it's in the world, that the sufferings of the world Are caused by greed. There are millions of hungry children and grain elevators full of food. It's not that we don't have enough food. We have too much greed and not enough love. The world is full of ignorance. The world is full of hatred, along with other kinds of blessings. But what we're doing here is learning to deal with this these primary forces with the roots of them this from Karl Fried von Durkheim. See, where are you, Durkheim? I know you're here. The person who being really on the way falls upon hard times in the world will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. And in this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening." So on the days that you have beautiful, glorious, spacious delightful meditation, hallelujah, that's great. And on the days that you feel like you're falling apart or you're facing the primary forces of anger or fear or rage and so forth, hallelujah too, those are part of the opening to that which is indestructible in you and the trust and the body of awareness that can hold it all. Now some people here, activists, people who have big lives in the world, many, many people, all of us individually, can be concerned that coming on retreat is somehow a withdrawal from the world or even that it gets self-centered. There's the ecological crisis, there's the crisis with immigrants, there's the rising tide of hate and divisiveness, there is world hunger and there's racism and there's a, a spreading a uh, tide of weaponry across the world that our country sells a lot of. We sell more weapons than any other country on earth. And then we don't feel safe. It's a something, something a little wrong in that equation. Um, or, or, or even nuclear war. So how does this relate to that? In Zen they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. The garden is the garden of the world. You quiet your mind, you open your heart, you open beyond the body of fear, the small sense of self. And then when you get up, you return to the world in a different way with a kind of wisdom and courage. And Gandhi did it, as we know, one day a week. Didn't matter that he was dismantling the entire British Empire hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating or rioting or being killed or being activated and they'd say, Gandhiji, you must come and help And he'd say, I'm sorry, this is Thursday, it's my day off, you know. It's my day of contemplation. I have to stop and quiet myself and listen to what is the best and deepest and most loving and honest response I can make. And it was out of that that the depth of his work and transformation happened. So when you get up from your seat, you become, chosen or not, a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened. Sattva means being. A being who is committed to the awakening of the world. Because you sit, quiet the mind, remember something vast and true. And you also see, as you could feel in the big sky meditation or in the various forms of meta we've done, that it's all your family. You know, as Thich Nhat Hanh <clears throat> wrote um, that famous poem, Call Me By My True Names. You know, I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds on the frog. I'm the 12-year-old girl refugee in a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by the sea pirates. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And everybody's heard this poem. It's not simply poetry on a page, it's a reality as we sit, that the walls of who we are starts to dissolve. And we discover very directly and immediately that we are woven in a single garment of destiny, as Martin Luther King said, that we are part of this network of mutuality. And then when we understand this, how do we act? The key is intention. If you're committed to your own well-being and the well-being of the world because it's your world and your family, The key is intention, and that intention comes from the heart, as Spring talked about listening to the heart. There's short-term intention, and you'll notice it even as you sit or walk, that before you move or before you do things, there's always some intention. You can begin to tune into it with mindfulness, but it's especially good when you're in conflict or in difficulty. There you are, you know, about to send a text to somebody who is very upsetting upset with you and so forth and you take that mindful pause and breathe and ask yourself what's my best intention and then you discover that you want to rewrite it because your best intention is really to connect or be loving or or work things out and not just to be right or defend yourself or in your conversation with people and to take that pause and ask what's my best intention becomes the step-by-step life of a bodhisattva. Because the heart will answer if you ask. And because you have done the kind of training that we've all shared in here, something in you knows and you can't lose it. You may think you can lose it, but you actually can't lose it. It's in you. Yeah, I think about meeting this guy at the Miami airport when I was on the way to a retreat, and he said, <clears throat> walking around, he said, Jack, is that you? I said, yeah. He said, do you remember me? I sat uh, th- this whatever retreat it was with you in 1978. said, mm. And I sort of remembered him. And he said, you know, I I practiced for a while after that, but then my practice kind of fell away, and I thought it was kind of a failure in it. But last year I had a major heart attack and needed surgery, wasn't sure I was going to survive. And there I was getting tested and then rolled on the gurney through the halls of the hospital. He said, and it all came back. And I could be with my breath and I could be with my body and I could be with that space of awareness. He said, thank you. It was all in there. So you, you're learning something that changes your life. It changes your DNA and the cells of your body, or at least the expression of your gene expression. It does. So short-term intention where you can ask your heart and it will answer. And then long-term intention. Long-term intention, the most famous example in Buddhist teaching is the bodhisattva vows. You sit in Zen before every sitting. Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And there's several other vows like that. Desires are inexhaustible, I vow to whatever with them, you know, and things like that. Now, it's a beautiful vow to save all sentient beings, but it's also problematic, as i like to talk about, because you'll notice that the sentient beings that you live with and around you don't want to be saved by you, right? So then you have to think, well, what could this mean if, you know, those people around me don't want to be saved by me? And what it means, if you listen more deeply, is it is a setting of the compass of the heart, a setting of a direction, so that your life, this vow, is, I vow to bring compassion alive, to bring care to life itself in every moment or every form I find it, as best as I can. And later on, we might, on our closing morning, do a little bit with these vows, because it's a beautiful thing to do. Um, Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning and recites this vow from Shantideva. May I be a bridge, a raft, a boat for those to cross the flood. May I be a west- resting place for the weary and food for the hungry. May I be medicine for all those who are ill. May I be a lamp in the darkness to illuminate the path for all beings and may I do so as long as stars and galaxies exist until all of us are awakened together." Some little vow like that, right? And what you hear is really that it sets the direction of the heart. Of course that's the kind of traditional vow. There's a beautiful contemporary one from my friend poet, Diane Ackerman, that I love to read or recite, where she writes in the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. And because she's a fine poet, she has the language to express something that actually resonates in many, many people's hearts in their own form. So this is long-term intention. And when I was at that White House Buddhist leadership gathering, there were a hundred or so Buddhist leaders. Most of the communities had prison projects, projects with the homeless, you know, disaster relief. They weren't just sitting on their cushions they were also, they sat and they swept the garden of the world. Like the abbots who wrap the old growth trees in the forest in Thailand and Burma with their fanciest robes and do an ordination so that the loggers are afraid to cut down any of the trees in that part of the forest because it's now sacred. But here's something important with long-term intention and, and really a secret that you need to know. The secret is (laughs) that what you get to do is listen deeply for a beautiful intention and then to follow that, but you don't get to choose the outcome. The secret is to act beautifully without attachment to the fruits of your action. And that's the place of freedom. So, Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, I love this passage, I read so many times, to an activist do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about results opposite to what you expected. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, on the value, the rightness and the truth of the work itself. And this is what's given to you as a Bodhisattva to plant seeds in the world, beautiful seeds that you may not see blossom. Now there's a story that I love <clears throat> of a man named a. Ari Ratana, and Ari, who he's called, is the most um, celebrated and successful community organizer in Asia nominated for the Nobel Prize. He's got a lot of other prizes as well. He was a high school teacher in the fanciest prep school in the capital in Colombo as a young man, and also a very devoted practitioner. And he saw the great disparity between wealth and poverty in their country, as many places we might be noticing. Um, And so he took his high school class out to one of the poorest villages, the lowest caste, if you will, To the extent there is in Sri Lanka. Not to go to help them, but to go be with them and learn from them. To learn how they lived, you know, to tell them the kids about their lives, but to learn about how the villagers planted and dug and got their water and did all these things. And he arranged in advance that the villagers would give him, give these kids a big banquet so that they didn't go in order to give something to the villagers. They went to meet them and and learn from them, and they were honored by this banquet. It's a really beautiful kind of reversal of, oh, we're going to go and help these people. And of course, they all fell in love, and the kids made a project to help them build dig a new well and things like that, but they did it together. They didn't do it because these people, these poor people need us to help them. And this was the beginning of the Sarvodia, movement that then spread from village to village until it has now encompassed more than half of the population of the entire nation. Um, Building schools, building roads, digging wells. And as Ari says, he says, we're actually not that interested in building schools and digging wells. What we're interested in is teaching people to love each other. And the schools and the roads are the vehicle to that. So there was a terrible civil war in Sri Lanka until about five years ago. The Norwegians were trying to broker a peace treaty, and in the middle of those negotiations, Ari called all his followers together at this ancient temple on Aradhapura, and 650,000 people came, and this is in a country of 18 million people. And he stood up, and I remember because I was teaching at an event with the Dalai Lama and I got to tell this story as I was teaching to the Dalai Lama sitting there, which made me very happy because he, he, well, you'll hear. Anyway, so Ari got up there and he said, um, we're in a time of conflict and war, um, but if we're wise, we have to look for what are its causes. He said, the foolish look at the results and those who are wise look at the causes of things. And if we look deeply, the causes of greed and ignorance and hatred go back hundreds of years. They go back um, 500 years conflict between Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, 400 years of colonial oppression from various colonial uh, empires that had taken over Sri Lanka and 200 years of economic disparity between the rich wet parts and the poor dry parts. So it took 500 years to get into this predicament. I would like to offer you the Sarvodia 500-year peace plan to get us out of it. Five years of ceasefire, 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools, 25 years of learning each other's language and religion, 50 years of economic development plan to share the wealth from different parts of the island and each hundred years we'll get a grand council together and see how we're doing and how to turn it in another way and i think in 500 years we will be the island of peace that we want to be and when i heard that story i could almost have wept because it was the voice of an elder it was the voice of somebody who says it doesn't matter what happens now, and I'm not going to live to see it. And I'm not worried about the latest poll numbers, you know, and the focus groups, and who's going to get elected and what's happening. I have a vision that we all can follow that is true and wise. And however long it takes, this is the direction we're going to go. And the Dalai Lama loved it, of course, because of the struggle with Tibet for 50 years more years not being able to go back, Um, it resonated in a way that only can resonate when you understand that you may not be able to fix certain things, but you know what direction you're going. So this is the work of the Bodhisattva. And Thomas Jefferson put it this way. He said, one person with courage is a majority. And Ratana was amazing. Not only i mean he's just he's a beautiful gentleman and a sage and and so forth, but also he was harboring during the civil war these Muslim activists in his house, the Tamil who were part of the you know um group that the central uh, Sri Lankans were at war with and at one point the uh some military came to his door having heard this um and knocked on the door, and his 15-year-old daughter answered. And they said, we know you're harboring these people. You must let us in. We're going to take them away. And she said, my father has said that if anyone comes to harm them, they have to kill him first. But he's not here. (laughs) And my mother said, if my father cannot do that, then you will have to kill her first. But she's also not here, and I'm here alone with these people so you will have to kill me before you can come in. Of course, they didn't. Um, And it's one of 20 stories I could tell about Ari. One person with courage is a majority. And I think about that Chinese man with his shopping bags standing in front of the line of tanks, that we've all seen that picture, you know. Or I think about Wangari Matai, who won the Nobel Prize in Kenya, who planted trees, started planting trees, but got on the wrong side of the government, which isn't hard to do in this life, um, and spent some time in prison, which I think is part of the necessary resume to get a Nobel Prize these days, but ended up in her group planting 51 million trees because she had a vision of what was possible. But it doesn't have to be huge. I mean, those are sort of magnificent stories. Listen to this one. During my first year of teaching, a girl named Shay was assigned to my seventh grade class, middle school. She was a desperately unhappy child and rebelled against the most basic rules such as stay in your seat or raise your hand to speak. Shay and I battled for control of the classroom. I tried every technique I knew, behavior contracts, praise, reprimands. None of them worked. I even called Shay's home every week, but no one answered. She lived with an older sister. I went to the school counselor who said I'd done my duty and offered to transfer Shay to another classroom. I declined. Shay was my student, and I wasn't going to pass her on to someone else. In the faculty lounge, the older teachers patted me on the back, thankful they didn't have Shay in their classroom. June finally came. On the last day of school, Shay was quick to head out the door. As I sat contemplating my failure with her, she walked back in. Oh great, I thought, one last act of terrorism. (laughs) In Shay's hand was a small bowl, the kind that students made in ceramics class. She thrust it into my grasp. Here, she said, it's the only thing I could think of to give you. I turned the bowl over and saw Shay's initials etched on the bottom. Thanks for trying to like me, she said. And before I could speak, she turned and left. After several more years of teaching, I went on to become a school principal and now a district superintendent. Shays bowl has never left my desk. So sometimes it's the big grand things. Maybe it's a tree at a time that become 51 million. But sometimes it's just your presence with another being going through something that's painful or beautiful, that just needs another with them to say, yes, this is us, this is human beings together. And so you start to trust. You trust your awareness to hold it all. You trust the spirit of compassion in your heart, that the heart has the capacity to hold it. The great Zen ancestors say that enlightenment or awakening Is one with the trusting heart. It's actually the same thing. The moral arc of the universe may be long, as we've heard, but it bends toward justice. Sometimes it seems way too long and then here is Gandhi where he says do not be discouraged. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love is always one. Yes, there can be tyrants and murderers, and for a time they seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. And it's both true outwardly in that way, and it's also true of the earth. This little poem, When the governments tried to suppress the truth of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, the wind told the story. It carried the truth across the nations. The wind became a poet, a scientist, and a prophet. So there is a trust that things will awaken eventually and in their own time, that seeds planted will grow and that your task isn't to shoulder the whole of the world, but to take what you're able to stretch your arm out to mend or to plant as the bodhisattva. And not to be too loyal to your suffering or the suffering of the world. Consider being loyal to love. I think you'll find it a much more salutary way of living. And when I think about my teachers, Ajahn Chah, Mahagosananda, the Dalai Lama, Dipama, this wonderful woman in Calcutta who is a teacher of mine, they knew how to laugh. I think it's called the laughter of the wise. Yes, they could weep and would easily for the sorrows of the world. They had great compassion. But they also had tremendous joy in life and the magnificence, the unbearable beauty of it. And the instructions from the Buddha where he writes, live in joy, in love even among those who hate, live in joy in health even among the afflicted, live in joy in peace even among the troubled, look within, be still, free from fears and attachments, know the sweet joy of the way. and I might have read this earlier in the retreat. These are instructions. This isn't like some nice poem. It says you can choose this and it's possible for you. And There's a wonderful book that was published this last year which was a meeting um, for a week together between Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama. I think it's called The Book of Joy. And the main question about it was for these two men who both suffered incalculable difficulties with the Dalai Lama's loss of what's happened into Tibet and culture and people and destruction, and apartheid in South Africa, the kind of um, killings and um, suffering that Tutu also lived through. How can you be happy? And they both laugh a lot. They're very joyful. And they talk about it and try to answer the question. Thaiza, Dalai Lama and Tutu say, so much has been taken from us. Dalai Lama would say, uh, You know, my ability to go home, the sacred texts have been burned, many of our monasteries closed, our cultures um, being uh, oppressed in ways. So much has been taken. Why should I let them take my happiness? Because your depression doesn't actually help the world. It doesn't serve to be depressed and in a long poem that I won't read but is a, kind of remarkable one called The Brief for the Defense, I often read. The lines are, if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of the deprivation of others. You know, to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. When I've been in refugee camps, the kids make these little toys out of old um, cans from tinned milk with a little, you know, bamboo stick in it and roll them around and play the games like any kid anywhere. It is born in us, that child of the Spirit. And to serve the world, it's not to serve the world out of duty, as a grim duty, but to really see its beauty and to be loyal to love. So we didn't do the mudita, loving Um, joy practice, but part of the way it begins, you can even close your eyes for a moment and reflect. You don't have to change your posture. It'll just be a minute or two. Is to remember that there is a child of the Spirit born into every single being. And as you sit quietly, We could work with the images of people you care about. But for yourself, let yourself remember your best adventure as a young child, no matter how bad it was in your home or your life. Like any child, you had moments of tickling and laughing and rolling in the grass and having an adventure. And let yourself remember one. And may I be joyful. May this child of the Spirit born in me be joyful. And may my joy and happiness increase. And May the causes for joy and happiness grow. And as you do this practice, you remember that this is still in you. You picture others people you know, loved ones, friends, and think of and imagine their best adventure as a child, their happiest day, and know that that's still in there. May they too be joyful, and may their joy and happiness increase. I heard recently, you can open your eyes if you wish, of a study, the usual studies This was done on little rats, rat pups, at the University of Chicago. I think they were attending the university. And um, (laughs) um, it was a study about play because it turns out that most mammals play, and we know this, you know, that there's a certain stage where whether it's, I mean, the famous ones are otters and chimps and bonobos and all of that, but um, mice and rats and little creatures play. And so what they did in this particular study is that there's a certain period in the aging of these young rats where they like to play and wrestle and squeak and grab one another and roll over and so forth. And they divided them and half of them they let them play and half of them they would interrupt the play so they couldn't play during that critical period of whatever a few months. And then afterward in that population. They brought into the cage the collar of a cat that smelled, as cats do, and needless to say, freaked out these little rats and they all went in hiding. The ones who had not played didn't come out. They were too traumatized in some way and they never really recovered from even smelling that to come back out. But the rats who'd played, and who had that in their nervous system, after a while, poked their nose out, "Mm, I don't see the cat, back in and out, and began to explore and experiment because play is really the way that we learn. So the idea that spiritual practice is a grim duty and you have to kind of fix yourself, um, good luck, right? You've tried that. Suffering is the beginning of the story, it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is actually to bring a joyful and beautiful heart to the world. To stretch out your hand and mend what you can to touch. And I remember last year when the first edict came down, um, a banning um, immigrants from those seven predominantly Muslim countries and people were stuck in the airports and, and there was so much confusion and quite a bit of suffering that I went down to the airport with my daughter. She happens to be a asylum attorney. She Her work after she was at Berkeley and became interested first in human rights law and then in in this work. So her work is basically to help people whose lives are in danger from all around the world to get asylum. She'll have people like a gay guy from Uganda who would be stoned to death if he went back. Or she had a transgender woman from Saudi Arabia who came to Mecca in her mind, which was San Francisco. as was a different Mecca. Um, but anyway, so she went down with a lot of her peeps, these young lawyers. There were more lawyers were than there were people in detention, and they put up a sign, free legal advice, and so forth. And there were 1500 2000 people in the international terminal. And part of it was the usual demonstration, chanting and signs and all of that. We were there for a while. And then we went over to one of the immigration doors and there were like 3 or 400 people chanting no ban, no fear, refugees are welcome here. And in the middle of it was a New Orleans jazz band and the people would start chanting and then the drummer would kick in a little background rhythm and the sax player would play a little riff and the trombone would come in and and the chant was going and the music was going. The cops were smiling. The airport security was smiling. For a, a long time, it was like this musical celebration. It wasn't a demonstration. It was somehow a celebration of love. And so you get somebody like Molly Ivins, who was the great correspondent, for the New York Times and, you know, Texas um, political street fighter, liberal, whatever. And she wrote, she says, keep on fighting for freedom and justice, beloveds, but don't forget to have fun doing it. Be outrageous, rejoice in all the oddities that freedom can produce. And when you get through celebrating the sheer, sheer joy of a good fight, be sure to tell those who come after how much fun it was. There's something artful about it. I think if we're gonna change the world, we can't do it as a grim duty. We have to do it out of the power of love. And it's the same in your practice. You know, it can't be a grim duty. As Guillaume Apollinaire wrote, he said, now and then it's good to pause in your pursuit of happiness and just be happy. (laughs) And then this beautiful instruction for meditation from Lori Chapman who writes, I like nothing more in the world than sitting on my ass doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes you'd realize that getting up off this ass would be a crime against nature, (laughs) This is another form of meditation instruction that I think you would do well to take heart. And so whether when you get up from the retreat and you plant a garden, or whether you run a conscious business and one with integrity, you know, whether you raise a healthy child, whether you're a healer or a teacher, an artisan or a business person or a parent. You sit and quiet the mind and know that this is your world that you can hold in your heart. And then when it's time, you get up and you plant these seeds. I have a little reluctance in giving this talk tonight. Um, I switched with Trudy, who will give a talk probably tomorrow night or so. She's still kind of recovering a little bit, although she'll be here for interviews tomorrow. Um, and the reluctance is that I don't want to give you a talk that turns you yet too far toward the end of the retreat, because you're still really in the middle of it. So instead, what I what I want to say to end is that um, this is really important, difficult, fruitful, and at times magnificent work that you're doing to be able to sit on the bedside of the world and the bedside of your own heart and mind and learn how to really be present and open and find a kind of freedom and well being that will serve you as you take your intentions as you go out to sweep the world. It's really valuable and precious. Very rare to have this kind of time in your life. You know that well. So I want to urge you, first of all, to stay deep in the silence. And the beautiful thing with intention is, as you sit in the sitting, you can invite with your attention in these next two days that the meditation deepen. As you sit and start to get quiet, you may say to yourself, may the stillness deepen. Or as well-being comes in short or longer moments, may this well-being fill my whole body and the whole sky. Or if moments of happiness or joy come, may this joy expand. May it open and fill all of this being. And you can use the stillness and the steadiness now to invite a deeper level of practice. What's important is that you remain silent and there are a few people, anyway, who said, sort of, "Oh, we're getting along in the retreat. Maybe I should talk to my friends or whatever." Please don't do it. It's not good for you, but more than that, it's not good for the others. And it is precious. You don't know when you're going to be able to come on a retreat again, um, and the world needs you to do this. Now, here's the guilt trip part, right? <laughs> it's not just for you. It's for your, you know, the people you love and the work that you do, that to be able to stay with us and and really get the fruits of it, because this is the fruitful time now, is, is critical. And you can invite well-being. And it's a beautiful thing as you get quiet when you invite well-being or joy things. Often it will come. Try it. So this from Laurie Anderson to end, she writes, in the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates and when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand and it takes them months. And then when the map is finished, they make some prayers and then they erase it and throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony and they were walking around midtown in their new brown shoes, and I went up to one of the monks and I said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, keep going, because it's time to find your true home. So let's sit for a moment. Remember as well, the invita- as well the invitation to sit longer now that you're quiet. And sit, if you're awake, sit for more than half an hour. Sit for an hour, or sit up and then take a walk and sit again. Extend your sittings during the day. Or do a long walking and then a long sitting. You're still really in the middle of it. And you're inviting it to deepen um, will happen as you stay with it.